Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 to 46. This is the word of God. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you are blessed by my father. Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? He will reply, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Amen. And we thank God for his word. If you have a Bible, then please do open it to Matthew chapter 25 and that passage that we read together earlier. I wonder, do you ever think about how our culture thinks about the end of the world? It's perhaps not something that people think about all that often today. But what might some of the dominant pictures be that people have? Perhaps some people think that we will drown in a pool of our own pollution. Our carelessness with the planet will eventually catch up on us and we'll be wiped out by a huge catastrophe, not unlike some of the things that we see in the disaster movies. Or perhaps people look at the political instability in our world at present and think that someday it will be a nuclear holocaust that brings an end to the human race. Others perhaps think billions of years down the line and think of a day when our sun will burn out and our human existence might finally come to an end. I wonder how your, your work colleagues, your friends, your neighbors, your classmates might answer that question. How will our world end? Well, in the chapters of Matthew's gospel that we have been looking at together over the past few weeks, Jesus is very clear 
that our world will come to an end. One day God will call time on all of history and there will be a new heavens and a new earth, but before that there will be a judgment. From chapter 24 and right through to the end of chapter 25, Jesus has been talking to his disciples about that judgment and he's been doing so so that we will be well informed about his return. He doesn't want us to be in the dark about it. In fact, he wants us to be ready for it. And if you look closely at these chapters, you'll have noticed that from the middle of chapter 24 onwards, 24 verse 36 to be precise, Jesus is talking more about how we wait for the end of the world rather than the actual details of the events of that time. The thrust of his teaching here has been to prepare us for that time. But he wants us to live well now so that we will be ready for his eventual return. And so what we'll see this week, and we've seen it over the past couple of weeks as well, is that how we live really, really matters. How we live matters. Specifically, how we wait matters. It's not enough as Christians just to confess that we believe Jesus will come again, although it is important to confess that. We must also live as though we actually believe Jesus really is coming back. So how are we to wait for the end? There are different types of waiting in life, aren't there? There's the torturous waiting that Liverpool fans endure for their team to be champions of England again. 28 years and counting, by the way. There's the waiting of a sun setting somewhere in the North Coast when you're young or maybe not so young and you're on a date with that special someone. You never want that moment to end. Or there's the waiting for the weekend, isn't there? The struggle with early mornings during the winter weeks and long days at work. And then there are more sobering times of waiting in life. There's the waiting for test results, phone calls from the doctor. There's the waiting for nausea to pass when you're going through chemotherapy. There's the waiting for a loved one with Alzheimer's to pass away. You'll agree that all of those scenarios are very different kinds of waiting. What we do and how we wait, indeed how we live in those moments of waiting, will look very different depending on the circumstances. And so the question I want to think about as we look at this passage this morning is how are we to wait for the end of the world? How are we to wait for Jesus' return? How are we to live as his disciples? And how are we to care for our brothers and sisters in Christ as we wait for his return? Those are some of the questions that Jesus is forcing us to think about here in this passage. So let's get into it together. I only have two points this morning. We're going to try and apply things as we go along. We're going to think about the reward of the sheep and the punishment of the goats. But notice, first of all, the dramatic way in which Jesus introduces this section. Verse 31 can be scanned over quickly, but it's not meant to be scanned over quickly. In fact, it's meant to stop us in our tracks because the picture that Jesus paints for us here is incredible. Jesus is saying that one day he will return. That's how he understands the world will end. And when he returns, he will not be by himself. He will be with all of his angels. 
Imagine what that scene will be like. It will be a scene of unrivaled glory and splendor. In our culture, when we think about angels, we think of something akin to China dolls that we put on top of a Christmas tree. But that's not what angels are like in the Bible. In the Bible, they are mighty, heavenly warriors. Think more like Legolas from Lord of the Rings on steroids than the little thing that you put on the top of your Christmas tree. And Jesus is saying here that he will be with all of his angels. We don't know how many that will be exactly, but we know that it'll be a lot. Revelation 5 tells us that thousands upon thousands of angels, 10,000 times 10,000, are encircling the throne of the Lord Jesus in heaven. The language there might be figurative, but nonetheless, the picture we're meant to get is that when Jesus returns, it will be an absolutely amazing sight. The glorious Son of Man descending from heaven with legion after legion after legion of his mighty angels in his way. That verse, verse 31, is meant to make us pause with awe. The Son of Man will come in his glory and all the angels will be with him. And the other detail that Jesus gives us here in verse 31 is that the Son of Man will sit on his heavenly throne. Why is it significant that he's sitting? Well, it symbolizes the role that Jesus will have as the judge of all the earth. That's what Jesus will do at the end of time. We say this sometimes in the Apostles' Creed, don't we? He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. And so here it is. Jesus is sitting in judgment. He is sitting in judgment over all the nations, verse 32. And he will divide all of humanity into two categories, the sheep and the goats. The sheep on his right, the goats on his left. So here we have the Lord Jesus speaking to his own disciples, saying in his own words that one day he will come to judge the world. That begins to jar somewhat with our culture's view of Jesus, doesn't it? Lots of people, if they think of Jesus at all, think of him as being the most tolerant and loving and inclusive person who has ever lived and as such the least judgmental person who has ever lived. That he would basically just let everyone live exactly how they wanted because he is full of love and mercy all the time. But that is an inaccurate caricature of Jesus because although Jesus was indeed the most loving and inclusive person who ever lived, he was also the person who was least tolerant of sin in the history of the world. And so here we have him in his own words, clearly and unashamedly saying that he will return to judge the whole world. He makes no apology for saying those things because he he alone has the right to do those things. He is the king of the world. He sits in judgment over this world and everyone in it, including you and me. So let's think, first of all then, about the reward of the sheep in this passage. There's no particular reason, it seems here, as to why Jesus contrasts sheep with goats. You may know that in the Bible, sheep are the most commonly used animal to describe humanity in our call to worship today. We read from Psalm 100, verse three, it says, we are his people, the sheep of his pasture. You'll know Isaiah 53 and verse six, we all like sheep have gone astray. Goats in the Old Testament don't figure too often. Most of the time, it's because they're being used for animal sacrifices, like on the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16. 
In our culture, it doesn't seem that likely that a farmer or a shepherd, even a townie like Ryan, would have that much difficulty in separating sheep from goats. But in Jesus' day, that would have been much easier to do because sheep and goat herds often ran together. They looked much more alike in that context than they would do in our world today. And so the illustration that Jesus uses here would not have been unfamiliar to his audience. Verse 34 tells us then that the sheep are put on the king's right and they are blessed by the father to take their inheritance. Their inheritance is the kingdom prepared for them since the creation of the world. Notice that word, inheritance. What's an inheritance? Well, it isn't something you earn, is it? It's normally a gift that you receive, normally because of a relationship that you have. And so the picture that Jesus is painting for us here is that the sheep, the people who are blessed, receive the blessing of the kingdom not because they have earned it, but because it is a gift of their relationship with the Father. Sometimes people read this whole passage of the sheep and the goats and suggest that we will be judged solely on how we have treated the poor, almost as though it teaches a salvation by works theology. But to read Jesus' words here in that way fails to understand the wider context of Matthew's gospel, namely that Jesus says all of this on his way to the cross, where he will pay for the sins of the world once and for all. And so that's the truth that lies at the heart of the gospel, that we cannot save ourselves, but rather we are completely dependent on the perfect work of Jesus on our behalf. And so to read this whole story and to think that it's advocating a, a try really hard to be good kind of salvation is to completely misunderstand the gospel altogether. If someone is saved, if someone truly is a sheep, then it's wholly God's doing. It's not a case of God saves you partly and you save yourself partly. No, God saves us. We do not, we cannot save ourselves. That's the gospel. That's what you need to hear, whether it's your first time in Hill Street or whether it's your thousandth time in Hill Street. And it's why that word inheritance is so important. The sheep here, the redeemed people of God, are not saved because of their good works or by their care for the poor, as important as those things are, and we'll say more about that in a moment. But they're saved by means of their relationship with the Father. Now that's not to say that this passage doesn't have anything to say about how we care for the poor. It does. But we must be careful when we read parts of the Bible like this. We must make it clear that the care for the poor and the needy that Jesus talks about here is evidence of a life that has been saved by grace, not the means by which we earn our salvation. So having made that clear, hopefully, one of the questions that we then have to answer is who exactly is Jesus referring to in this passage? Whenever he uses that little phrase, the least of these brothers of mine, you'll see it there in verse 40, and you'll see it again in verse 45. Who is it that Jesus is talking about? Much ink has been spilled over that question. And to answer it, I think we have to try and figure out what that term brothers means and how else it is used in the rest of Matthew's gospel. Who are Jesus' brothers? Well, perhaps it's easiest to say, first of all, who they are not or what it doesn't mean. 
the least of these here doesn't refer to everyone in the whole world. The term brothers here, which is a term that also includes sisters, by the way, is used at several different points throughout Matthew's gospel. And so in chapter 12, verses 46 to 50, Jesus uses the term to refer to both his half-brothers, his, his biological kin, if you like, but he also uses it to refer to his wider group of disciples, the people who were following him at the time. And then again in chapter 23 and verse 8, the term is used to, to, to refer to that wider group of disciples. Again in Matthew chapter 28, after the resurrection in verse 10, Jesus uses, uses that word with the woman at the tomb to talk about his wider group of disciples. And so that term, least of these in Matthew, is not referring to all people everywhere, nor is it referring to all poor and needy people everywhere. That's important. Rather, it is referring specifically to disciples of Jesus who are poor and needy. Now, that doesn't mean that Christians aren't to care for the poor outside of the family of faith. We absolutely are to do that. The Bible speaks about doing that regularly especially in the Old Testament prophetic writing, some of the books like Amos, for example. We should be involved in caring for the poor. We should be involved in working in the community, caring for our neighbors. Those are good and important things for Christians to do. But that is not what Jesus is talking about here. And we must read and interpret the Bible responsibly in order to understand what it is it's saying to us. So the point that Jesus is emphasizing here is that believers are to care for one another. And true disciples, the sheep, will be those who truly care for their brothers and sisters in need as though they were caring for Jesus himself. You'll see in this passage that Jesus is identifying himself very intimately and very directly with his people. He is saying that when we serve our brothers and sisters in need, we are actually serving him. And he's also saying that one of the things that marks us out as his true disciples is that we will find ourselves attending to the needs of our brothers and sisters. So here's the challenge for us as a congregation this morning. How are we doing at caring for one another? How are we doing at caring for those in our church family who are most in need or take a step back even from that, right? How are we doing at actually getting to know one another's needs? Are we actually forming the kinds of relationships with one another whereby we know each other's needs, whereby we share our own needs with one another? Here's a question for you to, to think about today over the dinner table. What might it look like for you this week to do something intentional that cares for another Christian brother or sister in need. Following the Lord Jesus is meant to be practical. It is meant to outwork itself in how we live our lives. If we really are his sheep, then we will be less concerned with being the center of attention ourselves we will be less concerned with how people are treating us and more concerned with how we are treating other people. We will be generous with our time. We will be generous with our money, generous with our homes. We will care for those amongst us who are needy. 
course, the other side of that is that we, we must be a people who are willing to receive help and care for others. So here's another question to consider. How are we doing at allowing others to help us? Because we can't just read ourselves into the role of helper here in the story. We must also recognize in the Christian life that we will inevitably find ourselves in time of real and perhaps even desperate need. And in those times, we need to be open to the help and support of our brothers and sisters. So Jesus is saying here that one of the things that will mark us out as his people is our sacrificial care for one another. The early church understood this, I think. They understood what it meant to be sheep, how to live as they waited for the Lord Jesus' return. There's a quotation here on the screen from an early Christian philosopher, Aristides of Athens. He said this about the early church and how they cared for one another. They walk in all humility and kindness and falsehood is not found among them and they love one another. They despise not the widow and grieve not the orphan. If they see a stranger, they bring him under their roof and rejoice over him as if he were their own brother for they call themselves brethren, not after the flesh, but after the Spirit of God. When one of their poor passes away from the world and any of them see him, he provides for his burial according to his ability. And if they hear that any of their number is imprisoned or oppressed for the name of their Messiah, all of them provide for his needs. And if there is among them a man that is needy and poor, and they have not an abundance of necessaries, they fast two or three days that they might supply the needy with their necessary food. Imagine what it might be like to belong to a community like that. A community of people who loved each other and cared for each other sacrificially. You know something? That's what Jesus is saying we should be like. This is how we should live as we wait on his return. So that's a little bit about the sheep. Let's move on then to think about the punishment of the goats. Having blessed the sheep on his right, Jesus now turns to the goats on his left and he uses the same wording as before, except this time he curses the goats, verse 41. Why are they cursed? Well, they are cursed for their failure to demonstrate mercy to Jesus and his church in need. It is a sin of omission here that condemns them. So you'll know with, with the boys and girls here in church or in Holiday Bible Club, sometimes when we're talking about sin, we use that little definition. Sin is the bad things that we think and say and do. It's the good things that we don't do. It's saying no to God and go in our own way and not his. And so the goats here are condemned for the middle part of that definition. It's the good things that they don't do that condemns them. In the same way that the sheep's generosity towards their brothers and sisters was evidence of spiritual life, so too the goat's failure to care for believers is evidence of absence of spiritual life and vitality. Their sins of omission indicate the state of their hearts. Ultimately, they are shown to be self-centered, unrepentant, and as such cut off from God and cursed by Jesus the judge. And verse 41 tells us that they are cast into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. The picture there is that they are sent to a place of eternal evil, a place reserved for those who have rebelled against God and his rule. Perhaps in the West, this is a particularly pertinent challenge for us when we think about sin. 
we still tend to think very much in terms of sins of commission, the bad things that we think and say and do. But biblically speaking, there is so much more to sin than that. And when we fail to do the good things that God says we should do, then we are guilty of sin. And outside of Christ, our sin has tragic eternal consequences. Jesus could not be making it clearer. And so in the same way that the reward of the sheep is an eternal reward, so too the punishment of the goats here is an eternal punishment. It is impossible to read Jesus' condemnation of the goats here and not feel at least a little bit uncomfortable. He is clearly telling us we will be accountable for how we live. He is telling us that judgment awaits everyone. There will be no exceptions, no favoritism shown, no excuses. His judgment will be totally fair. And he is clearly telling us that we will not all go the same way. As much as some people might like to believe that in our tolerant and pluralist culture, Jesus is clear. It is possible to be totally lost. It is possible to be cut off from him. It is possible to be totally without hope, facing only his curse rather than his blessing. And so as you think about your attitude towards Jesus and his church, how is it that you view them? Do you find yourself indifferent to the needs and struggles of other believers? Do you find yourself not really wanting to get involved in caring for and serving others because it's a bit awkward or it might be costly to do that? Do you find yourself just keeping yourself to yourself and not really thinking very much at all about how you might love and serve other Christians? If you do, then perhaps this passage is forcing you to examine your heart and assess whether or not you are waiting for Jesus' return in the way that he wants us to, whether or not you are living in the way that he wants us to. Or what about the implications of this passage for how we treat and view our brothers and sisters throughout the world? Whenever you hear about the plight of Christians in places like North Korea or Iran or China or Turkey or Nigeria or the list could go on and on and on. How do you react when you hear about Christians there? Did you know that in the, the last 150 years there have been more Christian converts than in the previous 1800 years combined? That's an incredible statistic. There are parts of the world where the church is growing exponentially. The numbers almost defy belief. But while the church globally is mushrooming it has been at a huge cost because there have also been more Christians martyred in the previous 150 years than in the last 150 years than in the previous 1800 combined. That means that in, in the 150 odd years that this congregation has been in existence, the church has both never been growing at a faster rate globally and has also never been more challenged or under pressure. Things are really difficult for our brothers and sisters throughout the world. How do you respond to that this morning? Do you find yourself caring about their needs and plight? Moved by their circumstances? Praying for them? Supporting them in practical ways? Or do you just dismiss it as being interesting or 
unfortunate, but largely irrelevant for you. Jesus is saying here that our care for those in need, our lack of it, says something very significant about the state of our hearts and the state of our relationship with him. So I wonder this morning, as you examine your life, and we must examine our lives in light of this passage, have you really been saved by the Lord Jesus Christ? As you sit here this morning, do you sit with the sheep, or do you sit with the goats? That's the question that Jesus wants us to be thinking about. Last thing, just as we close. We're meant to notice in the formation of Matthew's gospel that this is the last bit of teaching that Jesus gives to his disciples before his death. From chapter 26 onwards, Matthew begins to record the passion narrative and then the resurrection. And so we're meant to feel the weight of these things. Remember that Jesus is on his way to the cross here. He knows that he is close to his death. And the last thing that he chooses to preach to his followers about is how they care for their needy brothers and sisters, and then the ramifications of that for their eternal destiny. Make no mistake, Jesus wants us to see that how we live really matters. How we care for each other really matters. So let's resolve this morning to be people who will spend ourselves in the service of the Lord Jesus and also then in the service of one another as we await his glorious return. Let's pray together. Father, as we read this passage, we can't help but be challenged by it, convicted by it. We read it and at some level, It begins to read us. It forces us to examine the very deepest parts of our hearts and souls. Lord, we pray that today you will give us grace and space to think upon these things. And that by your grace, you will be forming us more into a congregation who love one another and care for one another and serve one another as though we were serving the Lord Jesus himself. Please help us to do this better, we pray. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.